Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and good afternoon. My name is Carla Thorson and I'm the Vice President for Programming at the Commonwealth Club. And I'm pleased to be the moderator for today's program with Daniel Byman. We're here today to discuss Dan's powerful and timely new book, Spreading Hate, The Global Rise of White Supremacist Terrorism. So we're just two months removed from a shooting that killed and injured more than 13 black people at a supermarket in a primarily African-American neighborhood in Buffalo, New York. The alleged shooter, Peyton Gendron, had writings that included statements that his motivation for the attack was to prevent black people from replacing white people and eliminating the white race, as well as to inspire others to commit similar racially motivated attacks. The shooting, with its manifesto and use of social media to broadcast it, sets it apart from others that have happened since. But it also mirrors uh, several other earlier mass shootings that happened both within the U.S. as well as in other countries like New Zealand and in Europe over the past 10 years. Buffalo is another reminder, if we needed one, of the growing threat of white supremacist terrorism here in the U.S. and around the world. And so I'm joined here today by Dan Byman, whose work focuses on this global threat and builds on decades of analysis focused on transnational terrorism, particularly Islamist, Islamist terrorist groups and networks such as Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Dan is a senior fellow at the Brookings Center for Middle Eastern Policy and a professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. Dr. Byman is the author of numerous books on ethnic conflict, the Iraqi wars, and terrorist groups, and is formerly research director for the Center for Middle East Policy at the RAND Corporation. And he also served on the 9-11 Commission. So we're delighted to have Dan with us here today. And just before we get started, Dan, I just want to make a couple of notes. Um, first, uh, this program is virtual, obviously, but I'd like to remind everyone that the Commonwealth Club is returning to more in-person events this summer in San Francisco. And you can learn more about other programs that we are hosting and special events for members at the club's website, commonwealthclub.org. And one last thing before we jump in, uh, if anyone has a question that you'd like to ask of Dan, please use the YouTube chat box and questions there will be forwarded to me during the conversation and I'll try to get to as many of them as possible. Okay, so welcome Dan. Thanks so much for taking time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. And so I, I want to start with the Buffalo shooting. Um, the U.S. is clearly no stranger to mass shootings, um, but this one was different. Uh, where did the Buffalo shooter get his inspiration from? And is, is this an individual act of violence, a homegrown case of domestic terrorism, or is it something different in your view? Um, Carla, I think that's a great question to start our conversation because I could answer yes to either choice. Uh, so in many ways, this seems to be an isolated individual. Um, to our knowledge, at least, he was not 
directed by um, an organization. He was not a member of an organization. He was inspired and acting on his own. But like so many recent shooters, he's part of a much broader movement. And so we can fit his actions into what happened in Norway over a decade ago when Anders Bering Breivik uh, killed 77 people who he blamed as responsible for uh, immigration in Norway, among other supposed sins. Uh, we could look at the Dylan Roof shooting of a black church in South Carolina that killed nine parishioners in 2015. We can go on to, as you mentioned, New Zealand um, and the killing of Muslim worshipers there, um, uh, Walmart in El Paso. Um, unfortunately, it's a very, very long list of victims, um, and they include um, they include Muslims, they include Jews, they include, um, of course, the black community, and really a, a wide list that uh, people um, in the white supremacist community have lumped together as part of a common enemy. And so when we look at the specific action, we don't see it as you know something that is done by a specific group. Uh, on the other hand, when we look at what he's done, it fits a broader pattern uh, that is unfortunately painfully common today and likely to recur in the future. So the, the shooter in, in the manifesto that he put out, he, he referenced um, great replacement theory. And I wonder if you might take a moment to just talk about the, the origins of this and, and where this argument even, where this premise comes from. So the, the specifics of the great replacement theory grow out of the writings of a French intellectual who argued that um, whites and even that word is somewhat contested, but um, whites are being replaced um, in their own countries through a mix of um, immigration and lower birth rates. And he was writing about France, and he was particularly concerned about the growth of the Muslim population there and throughout Europe. Um, this shifts to a broader fear that this is a deliberate government plot. And sometimes when you say government, uh, some people insert Jews or other elites and say that uh, people are trying to dilute the white race. Um, and by doing so through immigration, they're doing so through a range of supposed maladies. Um, for example, they would say homosexuality is bad because it discourages white women from having babies. Uh, abortion is bad because it means white women don't have babies. There's a host of things that they're trying to link under this broad umbrella. Um, so uh, and it, this idea kind of takes off in white supremacist circles, and it's referenced very specifically by the New Zealand shooter in 2019, for example. Uh, but I would stress, although the Great Replacement gets a lot of attention, um, white supremacists have been saying, I'm going to say for decades, but perhaps longer, that white people are under attack. They've always justified their action by saying that there are plots afoot to put down whites um, in the United States in the past. I won't use the words, but it was about, um, you know, they raised the specter of black rule and that uh, the black community would dominate the white community. And so sometimes this is demographic, sometimes it's social and political, but the Great Replacement is um, a latest manifestation of a very long series of conspiracy theories um, that supposedly target the white race. Thank you for um, explaining that a bit for us. 
So in, in your work, Dan, you look at transnational terrorist threats. Um, but what has prompted you to look more specifically at white supremacists and how does it tie into your work that's focused on global terrorism? So this is something, frankly, I should have been more focused on earlier in my career. Uh, but I really began to pay much more attention after 2011 when there was the horrific attack in Norway. Uh, when that attack first occurs, I had been very focused on the threat of al-Qaeda and other jihadist groups in Europe. And attack happens. My immediate assumption is this is a, a plot by jihadist organizations. And of course, it had nothing to do with that. In fact, it was the opposite. It was a white supremacist who was very anti-Muslim. Um, and um, so I began to see this not only as a movement that had consistently killed people, but one that was evolving, one that was um, bringing on new enemies. And in Breivik's case, you know, among the deadliest terrorist attacks in Europe, not the deadliest, but certainly pretty high on the list. Um, and then, of course, in the United States, in New Zealand, in other countries, we began to see all these white supremacist attacks. And it eclipses um, jihadist violence in the United States. So if you kind of total up the attacks from the Walmart shooting and the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting and Buffalo, and it's a pretty painful list, um, you get much higher totals than you get from jihadist groups. And so I'm very focused on what government policy should be towards terrorism in general. And after 9-11, the logical focus of that was on groups like al-Qaeda and then later on groups like the Islamic State. But the, the danger of the white supremacist groups is so profound. And one thing I would stress is um, for all the horrific violence of the jihadist groups in the United States, um, they did not threaten the uh, fundamental politics of America in the same way as white supremacists. So when they did attacks, they were uniformly condemned. They were way outside anything the American Muslim community supported. They were not linked to any broader social movements. Um, on the other hand, white supremacists interact a lot with groups that are part of the kind of edge of, um, you know, uh, part of the, I'll say, the alternative um, right-wing movement that interacts with the broader right-wing movement. And certainly, I would say mainstream conservatives reject white supremacy, just to be clear about that. But at the same time, a lot of the issues they talk about, whether it's guns or whether it is um, the kind of wokeness that they feel is destroying American culture, these are things that show up in mainstream debates as well in a way that simply wasn't true in the jihadist world. So I, I want to ask you to, to talk a little bit more about what's what's sort of fueling the rise of white supremacist movements in the U.S. Um, and how they why they become so dangerous. Um, but but bef but before you you talk about that, could could you take a moment and just let's let's talk about terminology? So uh, explain for us or how you think about this the difference between sort of white power movements versus white supremacy movements. Um, and also right-wing extremism versus sort of white supremacy. Okay. Uh, so there are different ways to kind of describe um, the white supremacist movement. And the reason I use supremacy in my book is I think it's the most common uh, usage. There is a very 
um, excellent historian um, who uses white power, Kathleen Below at the University of Chicago, who has done fantastic work on the subject. So it's not a particular term I'm wedded to. Um, but in my usage, it's simply those who believe that the white, white race is superior somehow and inherently superior, and that there are defined characteristics, and that these characteristics um, are uh, show that non-whites are inferior culturally, are inferior politically, and should have a subordinate place in the in the system. Um, the more important distinction to me is between broader right-wing terrorism and white supremacist terrorism. And in the past, terrorism analysts have used left-wing and right-wing simply to refer to parts of the American political spectrum where the violence falls along. So in the 1960s, and especially the 1970s, a tremendous concern about left-wing groups, where you had groups that were, say, opposed to the Vietnam War or uh, concerned about um, uh, inadequate uh, support for civil rights um, that were using violence. And those are causes associated with the American left, so it's called left-wing terrorism. It wasn't meant to imply anything much more than that. Um, when we talk about right-wing terrorism, uh, we are talking about uh, the same thing. So if it is linked to, uh, say, gun rights, if it is linked to abortion. Um, and so there's a lot of um, right-wing issues that have nothing to do with race. Um, and historically, a lot of what right-wing terrorism or violence was linked to were groups like the militia movement that were focused on the threat of government. They saw the government as communist-controlled. Um, and as a result, uh, they were... Excuse me. Um, they were um, uh, willing to use violence, but it wasn't really about race. Um, what I would stress today, though, is how these movements have merged. It's very hard to sort out white supremacy uh, from kind of broader anti-government sentiment. And part of that is because in the 1950s and 1960s, and especially before that time period, um, white supremacy was in many states enshrined in law. There were laws guaranteeing that blacks could not vote, that did not have full civil rights. And um, the um, government policy, especially at the state level, supported that. Um, by the early 1970s, there's a shift because the government turns against white supremacist movements. There's an extremely effective FBI campaign against the Ku Klux Klan that, that shatters it um, in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Um, and as a result, white supremacists, which used to like the FBI, they said, you know, Hoover's doing a good job fighting communism. Um, now they start to hate the FBI and see the government as responsible for subordinating whites. Uh, so you see emerging there. Um, and they also become much more linked to kind of a violent paramilitary um, approach that's common in the anti-government movement. Uh, so today it's very hard to sort out where anti-government groups um, are and where white supremacist groups are, because there's so much intermingling. Thank you. That's really helpful um, to think about this. Um, so to, to, to come back to the sort of the, the bigger question about, you know, what is actually fueling the rise of white supremacist movements in the U.S., but not just in the U.S., I mean, globally, it, it's on the rise. Um, and how is it? Uh, how is it that it's become so dangerous? I mean, I guess when I look at it, I would ask, you know, have we always had fringe groups or like this in the U.S. and are we just seeing them more clearly or more prominently now? This is a very difficult and, and to me a very important question. Uh, so, of course, we've always had fringe groups. 
right? You can go back through American history. Um, and in a way, this is a good news story, right? Where fringe groups, you know, often won. If you look at, um, you know, the aftermath of the Civil War and Reconstruction, we had violent white supremacist groups, you know, destroy democracy in the South and um, disenfranchise much of the Southern population um, and do so successfully. So you had uh, the successful use of violence. You have, um, you know, large killings of uh, Chinese workers who came to California and other Western states. Um, and in the 1920s, you had large Klan groups throughout the country, especially, frankly, in the Midwest um, and North Central parts of the country, not just the South, um, that helped pass immigration restrictions that prevented uh, many uh, people from coming to the United States. So we've, we've certainly always had this. Um, but I would stress there's been a rise in um, terrorism um, and white supremacist sentiment in the last few decades, in my view, for several reasons. Um, much of this is linked to the reality of changing demographics in the United States, where you could assume 50 years ago that an American was um, um, going to be uh, Christian and going to be white-skinned. Um, and that assumption today is just statistically less and less true, right? Of course, there have always been dark-skinned people and always been non-Christians in the United States, but we're seeing uh, the growth of immigration from uh, certainly from uh, South America and Latin America, but also from Asia. Um, we're seeing people move away from religion and... Um, uh, more atheism. Um, and related to that, we're also seeing gender dynamics, uh, where it used to be that, um, you know, men had defined roles, often, uh, primary roles in society, and that's uh, being directly challenged. Um, so there is genuine change, and not surprisingly, it's creating, um, some winners and losers, and people do not like, um, some people do not like that change. That change became very manifest after the 2008 election when the United States elects its first black president, Barack Obama. And there's a huge surge in hate crimes at this time. And this is something that, you know, I at least saw as a sign of American progress, that the United States, it would have been unthinkable to me, you know, 50 years ago to have had uh, a black American be elected president. But today, but that happened and it happened you know, resoundingly. Um, and, um, but at the same time, there were people for whom this was anathema and who, who resisted that, and that spurred people on. Um, we also saw a shift in politics, and this is a whole broader conversation, uh, but there used to be a lot more gatekeepers, right? And so, you know, part of what we're doing right now, right, would have been impossible technologically 25 years ago, where a uh, few people could reach a mass audience, with relative ease. And it used to be, you know, when I was uh, younger, you had a few networks on and those networks guarded their privileges very carefully and controlled discourse. Um, and in a bad way, it meant certain voices were not heard and certain issues were not aired, right? I mean, there's, let's not forget that there's a lot of communities shut out from that. But at the same time, they and, and the major political parties worked to exclude the fringes. And you had technological change, and starting in the early 1970s, you had political change that enabled the fringes to be much louder and to play a more direct role. Um, so to me, it's a combination of factors that has led us to where we are today. Thank you. 
Well, so I want to actually, there's sort of two parts to what you were just talking about. And, and I want to come, come back to the, the demographic issue, because one of the things that I've, I've heard you talk about is, is the extent to which immigration issues um, beyond the U.S. that, you know, if something if something happens in one part of the world, it can actually rally a white supremacist in another part of the world. Can you talk a little bit more about how sort of globalized that challenge has become? So one thing about the Internet, and we can, you know, talk more about this, but one thing I would emphasize to start with is that uh, discourse is much more global. And as a result, we're seeing what happens in New Zealand, what happens in Norway, be read about and talked about in the United States and vice versa. Um, and as a result, the idea of a white identity is crossing borders. Uh, so if you go back to the white supremacist movement 50 years ago, for the most part, it was very anti-foreign. Right? The idea was America was superior and it was kind of American whiteness. Uh, but now it's much more about whites being under threat around the world. So that can be in New Zealand or Australia. It could be in um, Germany or Norway. It could be in the United States or Canada. Um, and so there's a broader association with white people beyond particular borders. Um, and there's, because the internet enables all of us to find an example to prove our points, um, you can find a lot more examples that bolster your arguments. So, you know, somewhere on the internet, is a legitimate, you know, video of a minority committing a crime, right? And if you're someone who believes minorities commit a lot more crimes than um, non-minorities, you can find proof of that on the internet and you can look not just in the United States and around the world. Um, and so you have the ability of individuals to bolster their arguments by looking around the world. Um, and you have this discourse of ideas. Uh, we began earlier by talking about the Great Replacement, right? That's a French idea that gets bolstered by things like the New Zealand attack and now shows up in Buffalo, New York. And so you have much more global discourse. Um, I would add that you also have a much more global uh, sense of, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, style or methods and tactics, where you have things like what happened in Norway be emulated in New Zealand, right? You have a man who dresses up like a commando and sends out a manifesto and goes in shooting to supposed enemy targets. Um, that shows up in Norway, that's emulated in Germany, and then emulated in Buffalo. And so there's a style for doing this sort of thing um, that spreads from one country to another. Uh, what we're not seeing, and here I would draw a very important distinction with a jihadist group like Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State, is global operations. So we're not seeing an organization in one country control operatives in a second country and direct them to do attacks. So Al-Qaeda in Pakistan and Afghanistan organized 9-11 attacks on the United States. There is no equivalent in the white supremacist world. They're not, to my knowledge at least, coordinating operationally around the world. So that's an interesting question. So I, I, I have uh, read some work, um, Gilles Capel, a French um, political scientist, talked about the extent to which... Um, Al-Qaeda and, and ISIS have been using social media to basically mobilize 
um, people to, to radicalize them, to take actions in their own countries without needing to be connected to them in so direct a way. And, and I, I raise this question because I think you've talked about it in the context of people like the shooter in Buffalo. To what extent do these individuals effectively learn from others by virtue of their access um, to information in social media about the both both the justification, but also also the methods. Uh, so, one thing we've seen with really every recent shooter is they spend a lot of time on social media. Now, that's not shocking. Lots of young people do that in general, right? So, the idea that people would spend hours looking at social media is not surprising to anyone who you know, it kind of has uh, uh, younger uh, friends or family. Um, and social media has advantages and disadvantages, I would say, for um, the white supremacist movement. Um, and advantage is that it's a cheap and very easy way to reach large numbers of people. Um, it's also a way to orient uh, existing racism. And here, here I would stress that, right? So someone might, you know, not like black people and tell some racist jokes, but that person might not be political. It might not be how they're thinking about elections or how they should live their life. But when they go online and they start to um, click on links or go to websites that talk about bad things black people do, they'll see things that are bad things Muslims do or bad things Jews do. And they'll be inculcated into a broader ideology that will tell them, frankly, how to live their lives and who they should hang out with and how they should treat their family. And it gives them a community and it also gives them a way um, to think about the world. And that makes them much more political, much more likely to act on this. Um, but I would stress there are some big disadvantages to social media as well. Uh, one is that it makes it very hard for anyone to be a leader in the long term of this movement. Um, social media means really anyone can join in. So there's a constant kind of cacophony of voices that are always raising new ideas or criticizing or throwing um, uh, out possibilities. And it's hard for anyone to control that. And this is a movement that was already fragmented and it becomes even more fragmented. And as a result, the priorities are always shifting. They have a very long list of enemies and a very long list of things they want to do, but it's hard for them to gain any traction on this. And again, I would contrast it with the Klan in the past, um, or other groups that were really able to shape laws and shape politics, uh, these groups are far from that. Um, also, and, and more practically, uh, social media reveals a lot of information. So when you're giving information on social media, you're telling the, anyone who's paying attention um, often about where you live, what your political beliefs are, who your friends are, um, and... It's something that if you look at a lot of what's come out recently with the January 6th investigations, so much data has come from social media. And we know so much about where individuals were, what they did, what they thought, what they were trying to do because of social media. So if people are looking, and I would stress that if, it can be uh, quite costly for individuals and groups if they're not careful. Yeah, but to, to sort of flip that on its head a bit, you know, what... Uh, some people have qu questioned, you know, what happened in Buffalo, the, the shooter was able to basically put out all kinds of information in the lead up to it, and then tried to um, broadcast what he was doing um, 
so, you know, is, is that a failure of social media? And, and I think the, the follow on question to that is, you know, is, is what we're seeing online, um, is it online hate speech that sometimes sort of steps over the line when someone like the shooter in Buffalo, um, acts on their threats? Or, or should we label these kinds of these individual acts of, of extreme violence as um, terrorism? Should it be labeled that way? Uh, so let me start with the second question. Um, certainly what happened in Buffalo to me is terrorism. It fits academic uh, definitions very neatly. It's, it's political. It is meant to have a broader psychological effect. Um, it's done by what we would call a non-state actor, so not done by government. Um, and so it clearly to me is, is, um, is terrorism. Uh, but this question of how to think about failure and success of social media companies is very difficult. Um, you know, clearly it's a failure, right? This is a person who was able to send out a manifesto and leave information online that in hindsight was quite disturbing, uh, without it being detected. Um, but I would stress um, what your question alluded to, which is there's so much kind of vitriol online, there's so much hatred online, that it's really hard to sort out what's imminent and dangerous and what's just people talking. And of course, you know, the vast majority of time is unfortunately, you know, just people talking hateful stuff. And if, you know, do we want the social media companies to be much more intrusive is a question I think we as a society have gone back and forth on where at least I and I think many people have, have you know, big privacy concerns about these companies monitoring, but at the same time, <clears throat> don't want platforms to be, you know, sitting on potentially dangerous information. And with Buffalo, the they put up a video on Twitch, the shooter did, um, and it's both a good news and a really bad news story. So the good news is Twitch takes it down in a couple minutes. I mean, that's a remarkable success. That's really fast to be able to take it down that quickly. Um, but it still escapes, right? Two minutes is not fast enough. And images from it, uh, copies of it, uh, flood different sites, show up all around. Um, and it shows the, the ability of human beings to kind of use the broader ecosystem of the internet to overcome these restrictions. Um, and so we don't have good answers, or at least I don't have good answers. We don't want the kind of huge policing role, uh, but this, uh, to fall on social media companies. But at the same time, we want this kind of garbage and dangerous stuff off the internet. I personally would like to see social media companies be more restrictive in terms of which, um, networks and groups they go active, uh, um, after. But I recognize there are downsides to any the approach. Yeah, so that that is of course one of the one of the big questions is the extent to which uh, social media uh, should be regulated and and you know they are to to some extent taking it on themselves to make decisions about about this. But um, is there anything that's being done specifically with regard to um, terrorism and and terrorist groups to and and you know is there is there anything that's that's sort of forthcoming on on the regulatory side that you would advocate for that goes beyond them doing it themselves so uh, the u.s government's approach to me has been uh, i would be, I've been i am critical of this in both the biden and before that trump and before that obama administrations where the answer seems to be this is a really tough problem and it's really hard, 
and we want social media companies to take care of it, but without real government guidance. So when th- bad things happened, we're like, boy, that's a terrible problem. I can't believe they didn't do it. But government itself is abdicating its responsibility. Um, and in particular, I would say Congress is. Right? This is something that was really meant for legislation, which is how do you balance conflicting priorities? Right? I mentioned privacy. We should also talk about security, um, uh, security systems and encryption is part of this. There are other interests, uh, stopping, uh, uh, child sexual exploitation material. There are a host of kind of bad things online. And we want, um, you know, informed legislation on this. And instead, the answer seems to be, yeah, that's too hard. So let's just criticize social media companies either because they're taking too much um, down, which is what conservatives would say, or because they're allowing too much stuff to say up, which is more liberal voices would say. Um, I would say uh, social media companies have made progress, but in my opinion, not enough. So if you, what happened, uh, forgive me, I can't remember quite how long ago, but I'm going to say six months, but that may be off. Uh, the list of dangerous organizations that Facebook tries to stop is... Um, uh, well, leaked. Um, and it was a pretty massive list and included lots of white supremacists and anti-government groups. And as a result, um, to me, it shows that they were not simply saying, okay, we have a U.S. government list that's focused on jihadists. We're just going to use that. They were really trying hard to do something about it. Um, on the other hand, there's still far less policing of white supremacist material, far less policing of anti-government um, extremist material in particular. And this is something that really needs to be done. And not, you know, Facebook, I think, has many problems and is easy to criticize. But I would also mention YouTube has a huge problem with this. Um, I would uh, say that a number of social media companies need to be much more aggressive in how they think about who's a terrorist, how they think about who's dangerous, and taking down that material, even though there'll be a big price in terms of, at times, taking down material that should stay up. So I've got I've got lots more questions, but I just want to take a moment and, and remind um, all of our audience who's who's uh, joining us today. If you've got a question, please do share it in the in the YouTube chat box, and we'll try to get to it. So Dan, so uh, at the end of last year, you you uh, published a, an op-ed in the Washington Post in which you noted that surprisingly there there really had been no mass terrorist attacks in 2021 um, to speak of. And of course, we've had, uh, you know, numerous mass shootings and other things have happened, but but specifically that we've kind of maybe done a better job at taking on the sort of mass mass terrorist attack elements. Are we doing something differently to mitigate against this? Are we doing anything better with regard to... um, taking on the potential for mass terrorist incidents? Um, I would say yes, but what I want to stress is when we talk about uh, terrorism numbers, um, it's always a little risky because there's a large uh, factor of chance that goes into whether an attack succeeds or not. So one year you might have three deadly attacks and it'll seem like everything's going in really the wrong direction and things are really bad. And then you might have two years where it's much calmer but it might just be someone got lucky one year and they got unlucky another year. Um, and Buffalo is a good example of that, where we had a good year in 2021, and then you had this horrific attack in Buffalo. Right? So I want to, uh, even though I, I think at times the danger can be overstated if we're not careful, I think it's also important to recognize 
uh, the large degree of of, um, of chance. But in terms of what I think is being done better, I would say a couple things. Um, one is that the Biden administration has prioritized this. And this is something that actually builds on the work of career professionals who are doing this more towards the end of the Trump administration. Um, so there's a serious effort to go after white supremacists. And as I mentioned, there's vulnerability on things like social media if people are paying attention. So people are paying more attention. Uh, you have prosecutors at the state level that are more aggressive on this. Um, and because the white supremacists were used to operating somewhat in the open because there was so little government pressure, they left a lot of clues around. So when people began to pay attention, they were very vulnerable. Um, and we saw, in addition to an effort by the FBI and Department of Justice, uh, we saw the White House put out a national strategy focused on this, which to me is a, a sign not just that they were trying to organize themselves, but also that they were making it clear to the bureaucracy that this should be a priority. Um, and then um, add to all that, of course, is the January 6th investigation, where you've had, I, I want to say, around um, 800 uh, people charged. I might, my numbers might be slightly off. Um, and uh, that has huge ripple effects, where many people in this community are aware that the government is going after people who are embracing violence. And because of the overlap between the anti-government movement and the white supremacist movement, um, this is a very broad um reaching investigation that has a lot of implications. So to me, um, that broader effort goes a long way. It doesn't stop every attack. You still have, unfortunately, you know, some racist chucklehead could pick up a gun tomorrow and, you know, go into a mosque or synagogue or black church and just kill people. Uh, but at the same time, it stops some of those who leave more clues around. Well, so you you uh, raised January sixth, and that was actually sort of next on, next on my list to ask about. So um, let's talk a bit more about about extremist groups. Um, and yesterday, of course, was the latest hearing in the January sixth commission, and it focused on the role of these radical groups in fomenting the attack and chaos at the Capitol. Um, what are you, what are you taking taking from these hearings, and and how should we think about groups like the Proud Boys or followers of QAnon? So uh, I'm borrowing from um, a another uh, expert in the field named Seamus Hughes, and he described the January sixth um, insurrection as a bug light for extremism. So whatever your particular weird interpretation was you were drawn to January 6th. So if you were a QAnon person, it was, you know, the secret cabal moment to act. If you were a white supremacist, it was to um, stop Biden from, you know, coming to power because he was going to um, empower black people. If you were anti-government, it was, um, you were there because Trump was saying this is a conspiracy that the government's using against the American people. There were a host of reasons, most of which were fantastical, but they were nevertheless widely believed. Um, and add to all that, it swirls in with, I'll say, much more ordinary, less organized, less political um, uh, believers in President Donald Trump who were there to protest, and many just kind of seemed to have ridden along, right? The Capitol was open, and they went in. Um, so it's a very, you know, strange mix. That's hard to kind of characterize the broader community in, in a few words. Um, but what has been clearer and clearer as the investigations have been going on 
is the role of organized groups. Uh, so you mentioned the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers in particular. Um, they seem to be much more involved um, as organizations than was initially believed when the um, insurrection first occurred, where it seemed much more spontaneous. Now it seems much more planned. Um, and this is something that <clears throat> is a tremendous concern, which is the President of the United States, um, perhaps directly, but certainly indirectly, um, encouraging violent non-state actors um, to act as his shock troops, to try to destroy the democratic process, um, to try, frankly, to kill members of Congress, including um, you know, Vice President Trump, who, uh, Vice President Pence, excuse me, who is presiding over the Senate. Um, and so, to me, January 6th shows the overlap among these groups. It shows also how dangerous they can be when they're linked to regular politics, when it's not just people doing something really extreme but isolated, but rather when they're tied to you know, a much broader political movement that has resonance and that they can try to piggyback on to make their even more extreme ideas legitimate. Well, so so to to get down to the 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 sort of the nitty gritty of this, you know, when people talk about what can be done, um, you know, some people go straight to the, you know, we need to we need to do something to to regulate the weapons that they're using, or when it comes to an individual act of of sort of violence that you know it's mental health issues that need to be taken on. Um, what are your thoughts on this and on the, or, or we should be regulating social media because misinformation is, is, you know, leading people to jump to conclusions and take actions that are, that are, you know, beyond the, beyond the pale, basically. Um, and throughout your book, you talk about the sort of the larger question of strategy in, in fighting terrorism. So if, if you could, Give us your sort of crystal ball view of of what strategies we might employ that might do more to take on these terrorist issues. So certainly, it would be nice to keep, um, you know, especially kind of high powered weaponry out of the hands of extremist groups. Um, that seems to be politically unrealistic, uh, but that would be something I would certainly favor. Um, I would stress the importance of law enforcement. And I would stress that in two ways. Uh, first of all, if law enforcement, whether it's the FBI or local police, are aggressively trying to stop this, it goes a very long way. It makes it hard for people to organize. It means that plots never get off the ground. It doesn't stop everything, but it can stop a lot and have huge impacts. So one of the things that, that's gotten a lot of attention is the plot to kidnap um, the governor of Michigan, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, and to supposedly try her for her crimes. Uh, what's worth pointing out is that that was a plot that it seemed that the government did a very good job penetrating and staying on top of. Right? And so if you think about what could have happened, uh, there's a lot that could have happened that didn't, in part because of effective government responses. But the second thing I would say on law enforcement um, is that there needs to be policing of law enforcement to make sure it's not penetrated by the most extreme groups. You know, law enforcement, of course, is huge. And you can have individuals who are, you know, the vast majority of whom, you know, strongly reject racism. Uh, but a few bad individuals can go a very long way and they can make life miserable just as kind of ordinary police 
for minority communities, but they can also give an entry point for extremism. And that can have big implications. So you want to make sure <coughs> law enforcement is monitored uh, to prevent violent extremists from joining law enforcement groups. Um, social media, I certainly think social media can do more. And that can be simply defining who they consider a terrorist. That can be taking down more violent material, uh, things like you know, bomb-making instructions, how to manufacture automatic weapons, things like that should be aggressively taken down. Um, and also uh, really trying to do more to share information about dangerous individuals and stop them. Uh, but the thing I would stress most is politics. Um, it used to be, it was assumed, that if a politician embraced racist rhetoric, um, he or she would be shunned. And that this is something that uh, mainstream parties were moving away from. When David Duke is campaigning in Louisiana for uh, for governor and for uh, senator, he does win the Republican nomination. But you have national-level Republicans like Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush that campaign against them, that say, vote for the Democrat. Right, that are saying we don't want this guy in our party, right? And that's something that you want to see more and more of. And instead, we're seeing less and less of it. We're seeing individuals um, at the state level, I would emphasize in particular, uh, but who are using racist rhetoric, who are embracing kind of violent incitement, um, and they're not being rejected by their parties. And so, politics, instead of serving as a moderating function, is serving as a magnifying function. And that to me is the biggest challenge. And I'd like kind of love to tell you my, you know, 10 brilliant ideas to restore civil discourse. And I, unfortunately, I, I don't really have them, but we rely very heavily on political parties and political leaders to have a moderating effect and to screen out the worst. Uh, but unfortunately, we seem to be going in the wrong direction. Yeah, and that was a that was a question I wanted to sort of dig in a little bit on because you talk about um, the extent to which what we really need is um, political support um, for counterterrorism measures, and I know um, you specifically reference you know the the fact that social media companies have a diff- difficult time policing groups if the government isn't willing to give them a a terrorist label if they're not even willing to call them out um, in that regard. Um, but can you talk a little bit more about where we where we might find the political will necessary to deal with these challenges when we're so divided ourselves? That's a question that, you know, in a way is kind of the answer is so obvious, but also so impossible, right? Where it doesn't strike me as a particularly difficult line to say that there are a range of conservative ideas on immigration and um, gun rights and um, uh, kind of whether, you know, the role of uh, um, how to think about uh, gender issues in education, um, that can be part of legitimate discourse and people can disagree and that's, that's actually a strength of a political system. Um, versus supporting violence, versus saying that people who oppose these things are traitors who should be shot. And um, that line used to be very bright and clear, um, and it's getting blurrier and blurrier. And um, you know, it, it falls on us as citizens and voters to be voting for candidates who are rejecting violence. It, to me, falls on moderate um, uh, candidates of all stripes to be rejecting extreme rhetoric. Um 
But this is something that's, you know, it's very easy to call for. Um, and unfortunately, the political incentives seem to be going in the opposite direction. And <clears throat> part of that, again, is because there's less media gatekeeping. Uh, and unfortunately, I hate to say it, but it kind of works. Right. People are being elected on this stuff. Right. It would be nice to say if you go down this road, it's not going to pay off. But, you know, when President Trump was running for office in 2016, he said a number of things that, in my view, were clearly racist um, and clearly sexist. Um, and he won. Right. So instead of this being like, oh, my gosh, he's unelectable. How could he say that Mexico is sending rapists to the United States? Um, he was rewarded with victory at the polls. And uh, this is something that, you know, other politicians are learning, unfortunately, uh, that this kind of rhetoric can pay off rather than should be shunned. Yeah, and I, th- I, th- I think your, our, our discussion has, has led at least one, one questioner here to ask about um, just, just a, how we think about this. And, and the question is, do you confuse sort of the larger number of, or, quote, ordinary nationalists um, with, tiny groups of radical militant nationalists. And I think this is really about where do you draw that line? When have you stepped over it? And that's to me, I mean, you know, a a great point, right? And then I would say there are kind of two different nonviolent communities, right? Um, To think about, right? One are, as um, the questioner implies, you know, we'll say, you know, ordinary citizens with um, relatively, um, extreme beliefs, um, and but nevertheless reject violence. Well, okay, that's part of politics, and you know, uh, people have a right to express their opinions. Um, just stay away from violence. Um, others, we might talk about people who are kind of explicitly racist and so on. Um, and again, uh, this is something that you know we've always had in the United States. I actually think the problem was much worse in the past in terms of the kind of overall quantity of racism and homophobia and so on that it is today. Um, but the key is to kind of draw that line about um, what um, political leaders will embrace and what they will not. And I don't want to romanticize the past. I don't want to say that leaders you know, never played to race or never did this, but there was a sense that there were certain lines. Um, but the biggest line of all is violence. Right, where anyone says that, okay, you know, immigration is a problem and the answer is automatic weapons, right, as opposed to legislation, right? Um, that to me, that person has to be shunned. That has to be called out and they have to be rejected. And um, so, you know, yes, I think it's very important to say that people have a range of views, some of which I disagree with, uh, but if they express them by peaceful means, that's part of the system. But the key is whenever you start to get towards violence, that's where you really need to draw lines. Fair enough. So you talk about um, the extent to which uh, white supremacist terrorism has growing transnational connections. So is the U.S. uh, doing enough to coordinate with other countries around the world on this issue? And and I would also add, you know, are there... Are there examples of uh, the way other countries are managing this that we can learn from? So here the United States is behind where it should be. Um, One of the great successes in the struggle against groups like Al-Qaeda was creating really a global intelligence and law enforcement network that made it much harder for 
individuals to escape detection. And so when they traveled, when they plotted, uh, when they got orders from ISIS in Syria or al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, they were much more likely to be detected because of that international cooperation. And an individual who was in Morocco working with someone in France uh, was much more likely to be caught because of cooperation between different countries. Um, on the white supremacist side, we don't see, of course, the same level of organizational, um, I'll say, control that we see with al-Qaeda and ISIS. But there is a lot of interaction. And uh, the United States has traditionally said, you know, look, most of this is protected by the U.S. First Amendment. We're not simply going to stop racists in the United States from being racist. Uh, but there can, but more can be done when we come to the question of violence. And that's something where the U.S. has plenty of laws related to violence. Uh, doesn't have to use, you know, the word terrorism, but nevertheless, anyone plotting violence, supporting violence, these break U.S. laws. And this can be done, I think, very effectively in cooperation with other countries. And this could be sharing information. It could be trying to stop individuals who are potentially dangerous from traveling to the United States, denying the visas if we worry that they're going to stir up problems. Um, and other countries are much more aggressive on white supremacist violence, um, in part because uh, they have, I'll say, um, more restrictive free speech um, environments. So there's the U.S. First Amendment is... Um, puts the United States on one end of the spectrum when you compare it with other democracies in Europe, for example. Um, in addition, uh, they've had often a much more bitter history of white supremacy, right? So Germany, of course, is tremendously concerned about this because of its horrific history. Um, you also see them much more willing to list white supremacist groups as terrorist groups. So you see Canada, New Zealand, um, Australia, Germany, uh, there are listing groups, including groups in the United States, are white supremacist groups, as terrorist groups. Um, and this has benefits because it gives political cover for social media companies to say, oh, a democracy calls us a terrorist group. Then let's act against that group, um, even if the U.S. government is not going to do this. Um, and also, um, countries have at times done a better job reaching out to minority groups. Uh, so one strength of the U.S. system historically, I would say, is that the um, many groups have been accepted into the U.S. system over time. But something that showed up in New Zealand after the Christchurch attacks, I would commend, which is after the killing of 51 Muslims there, the prime minister herself, other senior members of government, made a special outreach to the Muslim community to say, you are New Zealanders. It wasn't Muslims who were attacked. It was New Zealanders who were attacked. And the fact that you're Muslim New Zealanders doesn't sh doesn't change that basic point, which is we were all attacked and you are part of our community. And we really want to stress this. And this is a very hard point, uh, but a very important one, which is to say when uh, the Latino and Latina community is attacked in El Paso, when Jews are attacked in Pittsburgh, when a black church is attacked in uh, South Carolina, to say that's all of us Americans are attacked. And we need to treat it the way we did when 9-11 happened, where it was seen as an attack on America. Um, and it's often they were attacked, and people may even sorry, feel sorry for them. But we need to think of that as us. Yeah, that's a very good point. So I, I, um, I always ask myself when I think about the extent to which the you know government is taking action on threats that that we as we as individual citizens don't see um the extent to which the, you know the successes are 
are things that we don't hear about, right? That, that it's, you know, classified or it's, you know, every once in a while you might, the, the FBI might, you know, let us know that they foiled some plot. Um, but from your vantage point, um, are there, are, are there gaps in our co- sort of larger counterterrorism uh, network that really ought to be addressed better? And, and how should, how should we as citizens be sort of helping to pressure government to take more action if that's possible? So certainly on the white supremacist side, there's more to be done. And this is something where I do believe the Biden administration has taken important steps forward. Um, and I hope that continues. Uh, but I would actually say the anti-government extremism is an even bigger problem that overlaps with white supremacy, but is not confined to it. Um, and here there's a much broader sense of conspiracy and the idea that the government is illegitimate. Um, and I think there's a lot that ordinary citizens can do. Uh, part of it, again, of course, is simply voting for political leaders who reject these ideas and making it clear that as voters, we may differ on things like, um, you know, um, how to handle inflation or the role of government in society, but we all reject violence, we all reject racism, and we're going to reject any politician who even flirts with these ideas and doesn't take a tough stand against that. Um, I would say that we have responsibilities in our community, that when there is violence, we have to think of it as how can we help our neighbors? How can we come together? And you know, right now, that responsibility may fall very heavily on uh, people in Buffalo, especially the um, white community, and how they can make sure that their black neighbors know that they are all part of the same broader uh, world and want to be together. And uh, this is something that we often kind of move on too quickly after an attack and not think about the aftermath. Um, and I would stress that um, this is something we just need to be thinking about in our daily lives, whether it's passing on information to our friends and sis, um, and uh, children, but just making it clear that we have standards, that we draw um, clear lines, and we're not going to tolerate this sort of behavior. Yeah, so that's an excellent point to to end on. I think really we have just time time for one more question. And and you know as as we look ahead to the the midterms and we think about twenty twenty four and we think about sort of the political will um, that is needed here. Um, to what extent do you think that, that we should be concerned about um, extremist groups? Um, mobilizing to do more than um, uh, individual acts of violence, but rather to to take more sort of um, concerted effort around um, the, the systems of of governance. You know, we saw a lot of challenges to the uh, electoral process in the last election, and should we be concerned about the extent to which we might see mobilized forces trying to undermine the electoral process? You know, I just think about what would have happened had had they actually gotten a hold of the boxes in Congress that had the electoral college vote. So, yes, I certainly think that we should be concerned about violence uh, directly impacting the process. And this to me, is most likely to occur at the state and local level. So some crazy rumor shows up that, you know, ballots are being thrown away, people show up with guns to protect the democratic process in their eyes. Um, 
That's the sort of thing I worry about, fed by conspiracy theories, at times deliberately amplified by more mainstream voices that want to delegitimate the election. And you have a pre-existing narrative that many people are already pushing, that the system is not going to allow certain people to win. The system is trying to um, help uh, President Biden or others. And um, when you have individual actions, it's easy to fit those into that broader narrative. Um, and I am very concerned about this. I do believe that many will be detected and stopped by law enforcement officials, but it doesn't take much for things to flare up when polarization is high and people feel that the system itself is in jeopardy. So I'm, I'm going to add one one question that just came in from the audience, because as as we come to the close of our conversation, I do want to encourage everyone to, to read your book, Spreading Hate, The Global Rise of White Supremacist Terrorism. But I have a questioner who, who is also asking you if you can suggest um, any current publications or journalists that that we might look to for more on this on this subject. Well, the good news is that there's a lot. You have some amazing individuals and amazing organizations. I would single out the Anti-Defamation League and the Southern Poverty Law Center as two excellent organizations. Uh, anyone interested in reading about the Norway attack, uh, there's a brilliant uh, work by Asne Sjurstedt, uh called One of Us. Um, I mentioned earlier in the um the session, uh, Kathleen Bilo's Bring the War Home. Um, so there are some uh, truly great works out there, both by scholars and by journalists, um, and also by civil society members. Um, and uh, this is something that I should have added is a bit of good news, which is communities, civil society are rallying to deal with this threat. So you do have concerned people that are uh, putting a lot of effort into uh, trying to fight this problem and making the country a better country. Well, thank you for, for uh, trying to end on an optimistic note. And I would say that's all, all the time we have for our conversation today. And I want to thank everyone who joined us online for this important Commonwealth Club program. And thank you, Dan Byman, for your time. And I want to encourage you to, to read Spreading Hate, The Global Rise of White Supremacist Terrorism. And this program and others like it can be found on our website, commonwealthclub.org. And I'm Carla Thorson, and this Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.